the Culture Guy Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. New episode. And we'll look at Japan and how it relates to North America and the Western world. And we'll look at that specifically through the lens of the automotive industry. everybody this is christian also known as the culture guy and this is the culture guy podcast thank you for joining us again and for those of you who are new to this program well thank you for finding us and being new make sure you go back to our website and check out the archives with previous episodes some of those are really timeless pieces and conversations we've had with people who've been very successful and efficient in crossing cultures both professionally or for just their personal enrichment. Today I have the pleasure of introducing you to a gentleman who is originally from the United States, however has done a lot of business with East Asia, specifically with the country of Japan, because he worked in the automotive industry and had a lot to do with a specific Japanese car maker. His name is Jack Parson. He Jack Parsons. I'm very sorry. There's an S at the end of the name Jack Parsons, who's worked for Honda Motors, and he's been in their human resource and uh, learning and development team. So he can tell you all about this. So let's hear what Jack has to say for us. Hello, Jack Parsons. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks for being on the Culture Guy podcast. Um, where are you today in the world? Uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I uh, currently live in Marysville, Ohio. Uh, and I was um, employed for many years, about 29 years at, at Honda. Right. And so I worked there and, and retired in uh, June of 2014. So you've been with Honda of America in Ohio or in the in the Midwest of the United States, correct? That's correct. Uh, most of my career was spent working uh, with uh, Honda suppliers in some fashion or another, uh, mostly in the areas of quality, um, supplier development, and training. Mm-hmm. So, for those that are not familiar with the automotive world, so if a manufacturer like Honda sets up shop in, in this case, in a foreign country in the United States, and they're establishing or developing a supplier base, um, does that mean that in your role you had to uh, get those suppliers ready to work with specifically Honda or specifically with a Japanese manufacturer? Uh, well, in some cases, they were Japanese transplant companies, um, mm-hmm. and so they were already familiar. They had some history with Honda and possibly with other Japanese OEMs. Uh, in some cases, they were uh, North American companies or multinational companies. And what's so different in working for or supplying a Japanese automotive manufacturer? What are some of the 
key points that you would have to make with, let's say, an American supplier or a multinational that had never supplied a Japanese manufacturer before? I think the biggest difference is developing um, trust, and that, that is done over a period of time. Uh, typically, Honda, when they brought on a new supplier, they would bring them on for a limited amount of uh, business or volume, and then see how they did. And if they proved themselves uh, worthy, then they had the potential to get additional business. Uh, so relationships are very important in uh, developing relationships are very important in Japanese culture, corporate culture. And this is certainly true as Honda came, uh, Honda came to North America. By the way, Honda is a very uh, aggressive and globally oriented company. They have been since they were founded in the late 40s by uh, Mr. Soichiro Honda. And uh, Honda was the first automobile manufacturer in, uh, North, in North America, uh, in Marysville. Uh, they preceded that by establishing a motorcycle manufacturing operation uh, for a few years. Um, and then after they were here, then, then Toyota and Nissan came. So uh, Honda were the, the, the pioneers for, for building their cars outside of Japan. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Well, one, one has to remember, too, Honda's uh, being a much smaller company. Toyota was kind of the GM of Japan, a huge, huge company. And Honda was much smaller. And for, for them to grow, they needed to go outside of Japan. Mm -hmm. So they were a little bit more uh, assertive and aggressive in doing so. And, and I don't know enough about Honda's corporate history, but I understand that they were not really encouraged originally by the, the Japanese government to, to do what they do now. They, 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 the government or the, the political leaders in Japan felt that Honda was uh, one too many in, in a small pond, right? Yeah, Mr. Honda was, was actively discouraged by the Ministry of Transportation to not start up an automobile company. Uh, he had... Uh, been producing motorized bikes uh, for a period of time, and he was told that there were already too many auto companies. Hmm. And so then all the auto part manufacturers declined to make any parts, uh, effectively blacklisted Honda. And uh, so he had to go back, back to his, his bike part manufacturers and ask them to produce auto parts for them. Some of those original companies that he worked with um, decided to, to stay with Honda and, and make those parts for them. Uh, Honda has great loyalty to some of those original companies. So you, you mentioned building trust as, as a prerequisite to have a, a successful uh, business relationship with Japanese companies. Does that also mean that once you've built that trust, once you've proven yourself, that the relationship will be one that lasts longer than you would expect in, in a U.S. corporate setting? Uh, I would say so, yes. The other thing that it brings with it is Honda was very good about supporting a supplier once they came on board. And if they did um, have issues and problems from, at times, they, they received a lot, of, uh, a lot of support from Honda um, in terms of um, Honda associates going out and working with to improve the operations of those suppliers. And so it, it kind of is it was hard to become a Honda supplier. It was hard to, to leave the Honda supply chain. Mm -hmm. uh, so once you were there, uh, they, they tended to be very loyal to you. So they made you part of the Honda ecosystem. Right. So I could probably count on the fingers of my hands, uh, probably, you know, the companies that I know of that uh, 
uh, cease being Honda suppliers because of uh, issues. So that Very also means that once once there is a good relationship, it's it's a beneficial relationship that a supplier wouldn't be willing to risk or wouldn't wouldn't want to end because it's it's good for for everyone involved. Then, right? There's a there's an annual survey done. Um, I can't remember the name of the company, but uh, of uh, an index of relationships between uh, OEMs and suppliers, and Han has traditionally been either one or two um, in that in that performance uh, survey hmm. every year, uh, neck to neck with Toyota. Wow. So I assume that in, in your role, you've not only served your employer in Ohio, and you also had to do some, some traveling, I'm assuming, to Japan and maybe to other countries. Um, what were some of your most memorable experiences in dealing with, with a Japanese company abroad? Well, I had opportunity on several occasions to travel to Japan. And uh, that was a wonderful experience, of course, to, uh, to go abroad and to experience another culture. Uh, what I didn't uh, fully understand or appreciate about the Japanese culture is um, it, it operates a lot differently from what we're used to. Mm. Uh, leadership is, well, it, you know, they say Japan corporate culture is hierarchical, but there's really a lot of bottom-up that goes goes on in, in the Japanese corporate culture. They do rely a lot on information coming up from the bottom to make decisions. And in a, in a Japanese uh, meeting, for example, uh, the person that's the most, the quietest person in the room, you can almost assume is the most powerful person. Oh, okay. Which is very, very different from uh, Western culture. Right? Just thinking about in the U.S., the person that speaks the most in the meeting is the president or the CEO. Mm -hmm. In a Japanese meeting, that person would be the quietest and maybe make one or two question, uh, comments or ask one or two questions and may not speak until the very end of the meeting. So not realizing that and, and ignoring that person or maybe not honoring or showing honorific uh, linguistic terms to that person in the room may be detrimental to establishing that trust, right? Uh, yes, and there's, there's another bad habit that uh, uh, Westerners have, well, at least Americans do, of interrupting each other uh, in meetings. And uh, that's not viewed very favorably at all. Uh, usually when a person begins speaking in a, in a Japanese meeting, uh, everyone listens um, and doesn't interrupt and waits for them to say what they have to say. And then uh, it's someone else's turn. Which, which makes our conversation probably very un-Japanese because I might jump in on what you're saying <laughs> or you, you might say something that I'm uh, commenting on. So um, you said the hierarchies are, are very much established in Japanese work culture. I also learned, and correct me if this is wrong, that uh, while Japanese work culture is very hierarchical, it is also highly consens a consensus-driven. So without reaching a consensus on all the hierarchical levels, a project will never be approved. Is that right? Right. That, that typically, that groundwork is laid before uh, even a meeting takes place um, through a process called Nemawashi. 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 Nemawashi actually means root binding. Mm -hmm. uh, is it when you're going to, going to move, a, uh, I think it's a bonsai tree, you're going to move it from one place to another. The shock of moving it 
uh, all of a sudden would be too much and the, and the tree would die. So there's a special uh, method of preparing the tree to be moved, and that, that process is called nemawashi. And, and so there's a lot of time and effort spent on developing that consensus outside of formal settings so that when, when uh, the, the players come together in a meeting, uh, they've pretty much ironed out all the differences and it's more of, okay, this is what we decided, uh, let's go ahead and, and, and uh, make things happen. Now, assuming that when Honda set up shop in, in Ohio or in the U.S. in general, um, they at some point hired Americans to do jobs that were maybe in the beginning done by, by Japanese executives and managers. At what point did you ever feel that your U.S. co-workers were ignorant to the fact that the relationship building, the communication style, and the, the, the hierarchies in the organization um, were not recognized by your American team members? Did that, in, in your day-to-day, -day ever cause friction that, that was uh, more than just a hiccup? I... I think the biggest one of the biggest complaints that Japanese had about Americans is that we're we're too we're too much of cowboys and so we shoot from the hip. Mm -hmm. um, we 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 come to make decisions quickly without having um, you know necessary data information behind us and uh, or or developing that consensus that they would like to have. So that type of that leadership style is. Uh, very difficult for the Japanese to, to work with um, and they and they would create structures organizational structures um, where if uh, they would have what they would call dual dual leadership um, which means that they would have a American and a Japanese uh, in, a, in, a, in a department the Japanese might be focused on a certain aspect of the department and obviously communications back to of Japan, and the American might be more focused on the day-to-day -day operations, but uh, they would essentially work together and be co-equal. Isn't um, that, isn't that a, a certain level of redundancy there? Isn't that high, highly cost-effective? Uh, I think uh, they viewed it as something that uh, worked well, okay. and uh, it, it, it got everybody on the same page. I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't replicated at every level, but at certain, uh, certain key levels. My, my, my question of, of, of efficiency is, of course, one from a Western perspective. So did that question ever come up with American leadership in the organization? Why are we spending so much money on, on dual leadership? Uh, the, those are payroll costs. Or do we really need this? Did that ever come up? Um, I think over time it did. And over time what you saw was less and less of that occurring. So the Japanese partners at certain levels would bow out and uh, they would not be replaced. And that would happen also in, in supplier organizations. But I think when, in the beginning they wanted to, to lay a good foundation uh, so that everybody understood what the operating principles and philosophies of the company were. And that was a good way to do it. Okay. Now, I also understand that dealing with an automotive um, organization in North America includes suppliers not only from within the U.S., but within the NAFTA zone, I'm assuming. So you, you had your fair share of dealings with Mexico as well, correct? Right. So we dealt with companies, um, you know, automotive companies in North America do get 
quite a bit of their parts out of Mexico and Canada. Um, and the companies that were manufacturing in Mexico, some of them were, most of them were um, either multinational companies or they were uh, other Japanese transplant companies that had operations uh, in Mexico. So how, how is the, the main difference between Mexican work style or leadership style and Japanese? Did, did that work better or smoother, or was there an added layer of complexity? I think an added layer of complexity. Um, you know, the, the Mexicans, somewhat like uh, Americans, look for uh, strong leadership style, um, assertiveness, um, a strong direction. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, the, you know, like I said, Japanese being hierarchical, but they require a lot of, of, of uh, bottom-up information in order for them to make decisions. Which Mexicans don't need, right? Right. Well, well Mexicans are looking for direction. They're not looking to, to help the leader give uh, give direction. They just want direction. Mm -hmm. um, not not too different from Americans, but maybe. Maybe more, you know. They're they're happy if, if the leader wants them to do something. Uh, that they're happy to understand what that is and go do it. Right. Uh, and yeah. they would go do it and come back and and, and report. But uh, I think the Japanese wanted to understand a little bit more about what was really going on, and you know what the consensus was, what all the data is uh, coming from from the bottom. And uh, they may not be, they, they possibly don't get that as much as they want. Right. Now, let's imagine you, um, you meet a young aspiring engineer um, who's about to graduate from college with, um, with an engineering degree, and they're looking to get hired by an automotive OEM like Honda or Toyota or maybe another Ford entity. Um, throughout your career, you've been in that business for, for what, three decades. Um, what would be some of the, uh, the most valuable advice you could give to either your younger self or that person um, starting to, to work for a Japanese organization? Well, uh, the Japanese are very much believers in going to the spot and uh, seeing the actual situation. So, and actually in Honda philosophy, they have something called the three reality principle which means one is go to the spot, which typically means the Genba or the you know, where things are happening, where value is being added, the factory floor. Mm -hmm. see, the, see and observe the actual situation that's taking place and kind of face up to that reality. Um, and so instead of looking at data and numbers from afar, not understanding what's really happening at the spot, that would probably be the, you know, the recommendation that I would have for an engineer is to understand the Japanese need to go and understand at a very micro level detail what is going on in the factory floor with a piece of equipment uh, producing a certain part, uh, understanding the complexities of that, understanding what is happening uh, with that piece of equipment and the interaction it's having uh, with the uh, worker there and the difficulties that are taking place and and, and all of those things, uh, all the amount of information and value that can be gathered from that is extremely important in, in Japanese culture. So basically, uh, the, the, 
the, the ex exact opposite of cowboyism shooting from the hip. Right. And the exact opposite of making decisions in a, in a meeting room with just data. Right. So um, what would be another advice you would have outside of work in, in a social interaction? So if, if you had to, and I'm sure that's something that happened throughout your career, to, to bond with a Japanese uh, team member or even a superior um, outside of work, what would be some of the social etiquette tips that you would have for a newbie in that field? Well, after, after work, um, dinner, um, business dinner meetings are very important in Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. uh, I would accept if those invitations uh, if they were extended. Uh, they often do that with um, a team or department to go out and have a, a get-together in a restaurant or a bar. And uh, those were very important uh, types of uh, forums to, you know, build those relationships. Uh, in fact, uh, I can recall when I went to Japan, uh, we would travel to a location. We were going to be visiting the supplier the following day, so we were checking into a hotel. And that evening, we would always go out to dinner with the supplier. Mm -hmm. Part of that uh, procedure was for them to get to know us better and understand uh, you know, our purpose, what we were looking for, uh, so they, and, and also to gather some personal information about us uh, so that things would go much smoother the next day. I always get this question when we do cultural training. They always ask me, so what about the drinking then? Do I have to drink when they drink? Um, is, is that something you, you experienced, that there was a, somewhat of a social pressure to keep up with the drinking game after work? Uh, no, actually, if you don't drink, you just you can politely, politely decline and say you don't drink. You can say I don't drink for um, health reasons or whatever, and it's, it's accepted. Okay. Uh, one one thing about going out to to uh, dinner and, and sitting around a table is um, in Japan, you never pour your own drink, mm -hmm. um, and if you start to empty your glass, someone will immediately fill it back up. So if you if you don't want any more, don't drink what's there. Okay, and same goes for the food. I'm assuming, right? Yeah, the the food is it's much more of a communal uh, eating experience where you're, uh, you know, something's brought out in the middle and, and people are partaking of the same thing. Um, so it's 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 much less individualized ordering right. uh, off of a menu. So not not a good experience for an American germaphobe then. Uh, probably not. Good. good. Listen, um, uh, I grew up in Europe, and 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 my grandmother always said, "Go play with the dirty kids. Um, it builds <laughs> it builds your immune system." Um, yeah. So when I moved to the United States, I, with from coming from my Central European perspective, I found the 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 desire for individual hygiene and a little exaggerated. Of course, it has its benefit. I'm not debating that. But I often wonder how Americans would do in a even more communal setting like you find in many Asian cultures. And you just described that perfectly. Right. Now, well, the, uh, other, the other thing is that one of their favorite things to do is to see what you can eat. Uh, wow. They love to watch the expressions on uh, you know, offering exotic food to you. Mm -hmm. uh, like on, on occasion, I had uh, the opportunity to eat raw horse meat, which 
we typically don't do in the in the U.S. I, I've heard they, they eat that in France, but um, so they like to you know to see if what you can eat, what you want to eat, and and they, they like they like to look at the expression on your face uh, as you ponder whether or not you're going to partake of something. So that that's kind of an initiation process, I would assume. It's similar to when 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 college hazing happens, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So is that is that imperative that you at least play along a little bit, even though you may hit a moment where you grossed out at something and say, oh, I'm really not comfortable putting that in my mouth. Um, How far do you yeah, need to go? I, I, think it's, I think it gains you some points uh, if you can eat a little bit. Okay. So <laughs> suck it up, buttercup, basically. Okay. That's right. Good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, so Jack, you do not work for, for Honda any longer, but you told me earlier that after your, 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 long, long career at Honda, you, um, before you went into, into your semi-retirement, you worked for an organization that's a Honda supplier that is, um, well, inclusive would be an understatement, right? Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I went to work for a company called UCO Industries. They're located in Marysville, Ohio, <clears throat> and they put together the uh, owner manual kits for the, for the Honda vehicle. So when you open your glove box, there's a uh, you know, booklets and pamphlets and, and other things and a CD and, uh, <clears throat> well, this company um, puts those together um, and it's a company that employs developmentally disabled people. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, it's, it's also interesting, it's an integrated work environment, so there's also a contingency workforce where there's a group of people uh, that don't have disabilities that come in and work in the same, uh, in the same location. So uh, it's, it was a very rewarding experience uh, for me. And uh, people that uh, have those disabilities, they just, they, they love coming to work. Uh, money's not the big, big deal for them. They love having the social interaction with their coworkers. And, uh, you know, it, it really changes your outlook on life uh, when you see people enjoying work and having something to do rather than, stay home all day and who'd love to come in. What, what would you tell um, someone in a quote-unquote traditional company organization that is rather monocultural and experiencing for the first time uh, a challenge of dealing with what I would call the other? So from, from your 30 years at Honda and that experience in that uh, UCO company, uh, having to deal with what's different, unfamiliar, strange has been your entire career. So what has that taught you? What would you tell someone who is struggling with difference? What's, what's, what's the one big nugget that you would place in their lap? Well, I, I would say the biggest thing is uh, Stephen Covey says, seek to understand, right? So mm -hmm. when, when you see behavior that's different from what you're accustomed to, you need to to learn uh, what's behind that, uh, because it's all about some assumptions, right? Right. We all have assumptions that we think are universal <laughs> in their application, and we, we come quickly to learn that uh, that what we assume uh, everyone else is thinking, and the reason why they're doing things is is exactly why we would, mm -hmm. and it's not it's not true. <laughs>
And and the beauty of the English language allows us to play with the the word of assume. I do that sometimes in trainings, and I, I write yeah. down I write down the word assume on the whiteboard, and make circles around the ass and the you and the me. So if we assume we make an ass out of you and me, um, <laughs> that's right. And uh, yeah. So seek, seeking to understand, that's, that's lovely. Um, Stephen Covey, for those who are not familiar with the gentleman, Google it um, or search him on Amazon or on, on your book site of preference. Um, if, if, what can I say? If you haven't read Covey, it's, it's time you do it now. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for taking time. This was very insightful. Um, I appreciate your, your knowledge. I appreciate uh, sharing it with the audience. Um, make sure that you follow him or befriend Jack on the social media links you'll find in the show notes. Jack, greetings to Ohio. Keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Christian. Jack Parsons from Ohio. So next time you dine with people from Japan... Be brave, people. Be brave. And also, just in case you're using your chopsticks, please don't poke them into your rice bowl and have them stand out like trees. Not a good thing to do. Set them aside, your bowl. There's a little with no porcelain bench where those chopsticks can rest. Just don't leave them poking out of your bowl. So the book or the um, person that, or the author that Jack was mentioning, Stephen Covey, known best for his book uh, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People check it out read it and then hearing him talk about the danger of assumptions I can only um, remind you and myself of another book that would fit very much into this Don Miguel Ruiz The Four Agreements and one of these four agreements is do not make assumptions I found this book to be very very efficient not only in the cultural training field but any personal development and coaching engagement that I've had over the years Those four agreements, they work. So don't forget to give us, our feed, uh, give us your feedback. Send us an email, tweet to us, or LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever you prefer. And let us know what you think, how you like the topic, or some input you may have on the things we discussed here today. And maybe suggest somebody who you think should be on this program. It might be yourself. Or it might be somebody you know very well. 
And lastly, check out the website, check out the blog, always new content up there, theculturemastery.com. Follow us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and mainly LinkedIn. Until next time, the culture guy is out for now.